the power of a magnifying glass. <laughs> and it's not that it just makes small objects larger, is it? No, no, no. That's, if you're a middle school boy, that's not the power of a magnifying glass. The power of a magnifying glass for a middle school boy, and even if you're a little bit older than middle school, is that it can capture the sun and it can focus all the, the sun's energy down to one very specific point. And if you capture the sun and you get the, the photons of the sun to focus on one particular point, what do you have? Fire! That's what every middle school boy wants. Something to start smoking. And so pretty much when you turn 8 or 10 or 12 or whatever how old you are, when you get your first magnifying glass, you just pretty much turn into a pyromaniac because... For a week, you go around and you try to burn holes in about everything that you can find. And having three older sisters, occasionally, they were the object of my magnifying glass, much to the dismay of my parents. Well, the word in this passage, chapter 4, verse 1, the word therefore is like a magnifying glass. Peter is, is taking a magnifying glass and he's trying to capture... All of the, the, the stuff that is shining off the cross, it's shining off Jesus, he's taking it, and therefore is a magnifying glass that's capturing it, and then he's bringing the focus down to one particular point, and, and that particular point is you and I. Look back at chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Jesus has suffered once for all. He suffered. He was, a, he was the only good man. He was the only righteous man. He suffered for unrighteous people. And, and Peter is using some of the, the energy coming off the cross. And he's saying, now I'm going to take some of that like a, micro, like a, a magnifying glass. And I'm going to take some of that and I'm going to focus it down to, to just you. What does that mean for you. How does that impact you? And he says, you're going to have to suffer for doing good. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, verse 1, now you have to arm yourself. You have to prepare yourselves for the same kind of battle. You have to say, I can see that Christ suffered for doing good, and that helped me. So now as I go out and represent him, there will be times that I will have to suffer for doing good. So the Greek verb here, to arm, in its noun form is the word weapon. You find it in John 18. Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons or arms. So Peter is really not just using this, these particular verses, but the whole of this chapter, chapter 4, to inform his congregation that they're not need to, going to be armed. They're going to need weapons because they're going to be called on to suffer for doing good. 
Peter's congregation is very familiar with this. Many of them have been put to death because of their faith. So he's trying to come in and encourage his congregation and saying, you have to, you have to be armed. You have to know what to do because when you find yourself in this situation, you need to be armed with the right kind of responses. And so our text this morning, Peter lays out three ways of arming yourself. And you can see it right there in the text. Verse 1, the right way of thinking. And we talked about that mostly last week. Verses 2 and 3, you, have the, have, you now have to have the right kinds of passions. You no longer have the, the human passions, the worldly passions. Now you have a, a passion for the will of God. And number 3, you have to have the right Perspective verses 4 through 6. You have to have an eternal perspective. When you're out there suffering for doing good, you have to have some long-term perspective. And so as I was writing that page, I wrote that page at 3.45 in the afternoon on a Wednesday afternoon. And as I wrote that page down, I stopped and I thought, I wonder if I sound like the flight attendant on the flight that's about ready to take off. I have a kind of a cool illustration. I have a point, transition point, and then I give you the three points, the three points of instruction. Every good sermon has three points. But you're, you know, you're, you've, you've boarded, you're, you're, you've gotten your seat, you've tried to get comfortable, and maybe it just feels like I'm the flight attendant. I'm standing up. I'm, I'm saying, hey, here are the three things that you need to know in case there's a crash landing. But, but maybe like on a flight, when the flight attendant stands up on the flights that I take, what happens? Somebody's yawning and they've got their neck pillow and they're trying to, yeah, okay, but I'm really trying to fall asleep. Or somebody's already got, you know, their book or magazine out. Or somebody is, is scouring the Sky Mall magazine for bargains. You know, that's, you know, what's, that's what's happening. They're not really paying attention to the, the flight attendant. They're just sort of settling in and the, the instructions in case there's a crash landing just kind of wash over and they don't pay much attention. And then I thought, um, I wonder what the people thought on January 15th on flight 1549 that left New York. City. You remember this three, four years ago? Flight takes off from New York and immediately flies into some Canadian geese. And they get come, some of them get caught in both engines, engine failure almost immediately. And the gentleman radios in, I, I can't make it back to the airport, I'm going to have to land in the Hudson River. And I wonder, I mean, they had just heard the instructions, had they not? I mean, maybe just two, three minutes ago. Hey, in case of a crash landing, you should be aware of X, Y, Z, and underneath your seat is, and nobody's paying attention, but suddenly, hey, we're going to be in the Hudson in about three minutes. So let's get prepared. So everybody now is ready to listen. Everybody's saying, oh, I'm sorry, I, I fell asleep. I'm not worried about my neck roll anymore. And so as I sat on that Wednesday after last Wednesday afternoon and I thought, well, if I were in the congregation, which is what I try to spend some time doing each week in a sermon, how would I be hearing this? How would I be processing what I'm saying? And I asked myself, well, well, who would want to pay attention to this instruction? Who would have a, a vital interest in paying attention to what Peter is saying here today? Who's going to experience a crash landing 
And they would say, maybe I'm not experiencing it now, maybe I am, but I will experience a crash landing, so I need to know what Peter has to say. And these were the four groups that I came up with, and they all come out of First Peter. Anyone here who lives under authority? Chapter 2, verse 13. If you live under the authority, sometimes the, the poor leadership of a government... A boss, a teacher, anyone who who might have reason to say about the person over them, hey, they're not they're not doing it right. They're not fair. That's not fair treatment to me. If you live under authority, you're going to come into that particular spot and you're going to need to be armed with what Peter is talking about at this particular point. Second, anybody here who's married needs to pay attention. Every married person understands that you're going to have a series of crash landings. And you might say a marriage is just a series of crash landings and taking off and crash landings and taking off. And you will have to suffer for doing what's right if you're married. And so you need these instructions. If you're a member of a church, you need these instructions. Now, perhaps I'm lowering expectations, especially for those in the inquirer's class. Uh, but if you get involved in Christ Community Church, especially if you get involved in some committee or group, small group, any kind of ministry team, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, Peter tells us that, that at some point somebody's going to speak evil of you. Can you imagine that in the church? I mean, we're not talking about the outsiders speaking about that way to the insiders. We're saying, no, the insiders are going to speak that way to other insiders. Now, that please tell me that's not surprising. Because you speak that way to people inside your own house. So in this house, you can anticipate that that would happen. We're trying to minimize that, obviously. We're not promoting, hey, come to the evil speaking you know, Sunday school class and learn how to do it better. No, I mean, we, but we're just, we're adults. We're understanding, hey, we, we're full, we're, 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 we're full of sinners here. And so you're going to have this conflict inside a church and you will have to, if you stay long enough, suffer for doing what's right. Suffer for doing good. When somebody speaks evil of you, instead of speaking evil about bad, about them back, you're going to have to bless them in return. That's what Peter says. So if you're under authority, if you're married, if you're a member of a church or in our text here, verse four, chapter four, verse four, if you live among the Gentiles, this is Peter's way of saying if you live out in the world, if, if you regularly mix it up with other friends, students, neighbors, co-workers, people that are not following after Christ, then at some point you will be maligned. Peter says, and you're going to you're going to find yourself in this relational crash landing. And it might be something as simple as just telling your old group of friends, hey, you know what? I just don't do that anymore. That may seem like a big thing, but when you have to say it at a particular moment, that that could create a relational crash landing. And you're going to need to know, well, how do I deal with with that? It might be a particular stance that you take, like the exclusivity of Christ. 
You bring that up into a conversation about religion and you can expect a crash landing. You want to take a stance on abortion or homosexuality in today's world, you can expect a crash landing. You can expect being maligned. So if you fall into one of those four categories, you should pay attention. If you don't fall into any of those categories, I I give you permission. I'm not going to say this very many times. You can take a nap for the next 25 minutes. But if you fall into one of those four categories, you already have, you currently are experiencing, or you will be very near a crash landing at some point. And you're going to need the instructions that Peter has to offer us this morning. So I want to look at those three. First, briefly, since we talked about it Last week, the right way of thinking, look at this in verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The very beginning is, I've got to change the way that I think. I've got to remember that Christ suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous. So whenever I'm suffering for doing right, I've got to have it in my mind Christ did that for me. So I'm just not wired immediately to jump into something that's going to be negative or maligning back because I I just understand that Christ has done that for me. That's that's in the front of my mind. And so you and I are required to have the, the same kind of attitude. We understand that when Christ suffered for doing good, he triumphed over sin. He triumphed over the forces of evil. He triumphed over death. And so good resulted in it. So I, I've got that in my mind. Even though I'm suffering for doing what's, what's right, I've got in my mind that maybe I'll see it or maybe I won't, but good can come out of it. Some good that would be worth having suffered for it. So I've got that in my mind. A great victory could be secured by my suffering. And I thought of uh, Paul and Silas. Remember in Acts 16, there was this uh, small girl, young girl, who was demon-possessed. And they did what was good. They did what was right. They cast this demon out of this girl. But it caused financial stress on someone else. So that someone else maligned Paul and Silas. And what happened to Paul and Silas? Beatings thrown into jail. Okay, so you're coming. You've been called as an evangelist into your workplace, into your school, into your community. You're doing good. I mean, almost anyone would say, wow. You rescued this young woman from something. I I can't believe it. What a great thing that you've done. And 24 hours later, for doing that great thing, you've been beaten and in prison. Now, how would you respond? What's your mindset? What's your thinking at that particular point? What's Paul and Silas's mindset at that particular point? And the scriptures give us the answer to that. What are they doing in the prison cell that night? You remember? Singing. They're singing. Jesus paid it all. I mean, I don't know what they're singing. Not that hymn, but something. All to him. They they know that Christ got beaten for, well, for them. And something good came out of that. And it's possible that even in this situation, something good would happen. And what good happened immediately for Paul and Silas? Do you remember? 
the salvation of the Philippian jailer. Why do you think the Philippian jailer came running back into Paul and Silas instead of any other prisoner that was in the prison that night? Well, there was only two prisoners singing. So you never know the kinds of conditions that you might be in that by doing good, by staying in that condition, by being armed with this kind of thinking that I remember what Christ has done for me and so I can still have this right attitude that you never know what's being, what God can use around you to bring people to himself. Well, we said a lot about that last week, so I want to move on to the second part. We have to have the right passion or the right desire. So as to live, this is verse 2. He's saying, you now, you need to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter has stated previously in chapter 1 his goal for his congregation, and he says it this way. Prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on Jesus. Do not be conformed to your former passions, but as he who called you is holy, so you be holy. So he set up the standard. I'm calling you to holiness. And as we talked about before, that means being set apart, being distinct from the world. And it starts with the right kind of thinking. But then it also causes us to act and react in a, do, a different way. I have a new set of passions. I had my old worldly passions that he talks about. But now I'm shifting my weight away from those. And now I'm focused in on the will of God. And I want you to just see how he's saying that. You see in, in verse 2 that Peter's saying, hey, you've got to create space now between your old way and you've got to now close the gap between you and the will of God. I want you to see that in verse 2. So as you, now you, you're living for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. I, I've had these human passions. I know what they are like. But now I'm called to holiness. They're still there. They still are enticing. But I'm creating space between the way I used to live and the way I'm starting to live now. And as I create space away from my old human passions, I'm closing the distance between me and God and knowing God's will. And when I thought about it in that way, I thought about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk. You see, I, I used to walk over here. This is, used to be the way I lived. But blessed is the man who, who no longer walks in this place. And, and he no longer stands over here. And he, he no longer sits over here. He's created distance from his old self to this new self. And what does it say in verse 2? Blessed is the one who, who follows after God and meditates on his law day and night. You see, that's that that happening. That should be happening in your life. I'm creating space from my old habits. And as I'm creating space from that, I'm drawing in. So I understand more and more about what the will of God is. And now at this particular point, Peter could have delivered a list of things that you should do in order to draw near to the will of God. 
That's what he could have done. I want you to create space between your old habits, and I want you to now draw towards the will of God. And he could have, and if you remember this verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul said, hey, I want you to remember the things that you should be drawing yourself to. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what does he say? Think. Think about these things. And Peter could have done that. He could have said, hey, you know those old things, but what I want you to do is I want you to focus in on the new things. I want you to be thinking about those things. But Peter doesn't take that tack. Instead, he says, let's name the old things you need to create space from. Does that make sense? Everybody saying, yep. Could have said, hey, this is what I want you to draw to. But now today, I'm going to tell you, let's make sure we're creating space from these old things. And he lists them. There are six of them. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The time that has passed suffices for you doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in these six ways. Now, before I just talk about those briefly, think with me. What does this list tell us about the makeup of Peter's congregation? Well, they used to be like this. Peter's pews are stuffed with people coming out of sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, lawless idolatries. Those are the the people that are filling up Peter's pews. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's not a common description for just a first century church. That's a common description for a 21st century church. And then I said that in my mind and I thought, I can hear somebody saying, oh, well, I never. I mean, that young man's not speaking about me and I'm filling up a pew. And I'm looking around at all the nice people in this place and they sure don't look like they're those kinds of people. And if you have that tendency to think that way, let me help you. First of all, you don't know yourself very well. Secondly, you don't know the not-so-fine people near you. And thirdly, you don't know the kinds of people Jesus came to save. That's the most important part. He says it himself in, in a really a shocking way. To the religious people of the time, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call, not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I've come to save people caught in the death trap of sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Those are the people that I expect will be filling up my church from this point forward. Those are the people I want in the pews of my church, those kinds of people. And when I hear that, what I hear is good news. Man, I hear that as good news. Why? 
Because this list describes the condition of my old heart. I don't look and say, oh, I, boy, I know some people like that. No, I know, I know one person really well like this. That's me. And so I fit into this category of people. And so when I hear Peter say, hey, Paul, when I looked out into my congregation, all I saw were former people that couldn't exercise any sexual self-control, people who couldn't, or, uh, could, were always going to parties and getting drunk, people who had all kinds of sexual problems, and, and they just end up having idols of all kind. Those are the people in my church, and I'm like, yes, I can come to that church and fit right in, because I understand that myself. And so the first thing we want to see is what a... What a great work God has done in this in the lives of the people of this church. Thank the Lord He didn't come to save the righteous. And we'd have an empty pulpit. And probably some empty pews. He lists six things. First two, sensuality and passions, and both of these words aim at a lack of sexual self-control. The, the, the sexual hunger that drives, meant to be, be healthy, has, has gotten warped, and now it's unhealthy, and it drives men and women, but I'm more familiar with men, in, in terrible, devastating ways. And he says, we're, we need to be now creating space away from those old ways. And I was talking a bit about this last Friday at the Iron Leadership meeting. I used this example from Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was a well-known writer. And later in his life, he became a Christian. And he was recalling a time as a younger man, he'd always fantasized about having an affair and he found himself alone in in India. Whenever you're alone, that's always a target spot. And he was out taking his daily swim in a river. And some ways upstream, he saw a woman come out from the village. And she was bathing all alone. And he thought to himself, hey, maybe this is the time. So he wrote this in his biography or autobiography, Muggeridge was swimming furiously not because he was struggling against the water, but because he was fighting against the current of his own conscience. And he says, I, I sort of finally got there. I could see the, nerv- the, the nervousness of the woman as I, here's this white man swimming furiously towards her. And he dives this one last sort of lunge towards her and he comes up out of the water just in front of her. And she's now backing off, trying to cover herself. And what Muggeridge saw was shocking. The woman was a leper. Her nose was eaten away. There were sores on her hands. Her fingers were gone. He says she looked more like an animal than a human being. So immediately he jumped back and began to drift downstream. And he thought, what a wretched woman this is. Then overwhelmed with this devastating truth. No, 
Oh, what a wretched man I am. I'm a complete slave to my passions. So Peter's saying, I understand that's the way you were, but we, we need to create space from those things. And today you don't have to swim upstream. You just open up a laptop computer. You find it. The primary emphasis on is on a over-realized sexual appetite, but there's also a, the sense of uh, a, the general hunger that you can have, physical hungers that you have, maybe emotional hungers, food, wealth, position, notoriety, control, comfort. It reminded me of Proverbs 25, 28, like a city whose, whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. See, the picture is there's a, you're over here and you're just a city without walls and every sensuality, every pleasure that can, can come in. And, and Peter's saying, no, now that you've, you've been given a new identity, you're beginning to build a wall, you're beginning to build some space between those old ways of thinking, your old habits. And then what follows is this list of three, drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. And these don't need a lot of explanation. But I would just say, don't you see that when you have a breach in the wall in one area, it just overflows in almost every other area. Every kind of passion runs through this, this breach. And it creates this stampede of self-centered pleasures. And, and it finally ends in this last one, lawless idolatry. In other words... I'm just so consumed by myself that I'm at the center of my whole life and I'm making everything revolve around me. And, of course, that's what Paul says in Romans. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images to make the images that look like ourselves. Lawless idolatry is at its heart just an image of yourself. And you serve yourself. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult downward spiral to even talk about from up here. So uh, ugly. But also, if you know yourself, it's familiar territory. And Peter is like a great shepherd. He's, he's saying, I, I know you used to be trapped in those things. And now we're, we're creating space. We're, we're, I want you to see them. But I want you to see him in a greater and greater distance. I want you to see that you need to create some space between yourself and those things. And 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 I don't know which one may be a trap for you, but I, I'm guessing that some of you are here just for this particular part in the sermon that God would tell you, hey, hey, you need to create space between your old way of living, your old way of thinking, and your new life. You're, you're too closely connected, and it's time to, to move away. And we don't know the tone of what Peter says. We just have his words. The time, verse 3, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That seems like such a sterile way. And maybe he's, he's sort of pleading. He's saying, look, you... You remember, you've done, you've done that. You've had enough of that. And it's time now for that to be in the past. 
Or, or maybe all this is uh, Peter saying in a different way, in him saying, Enough! You've had enough of the old life. It is time to create some separation. If you want to be a child of God and a follower after God, it's enough. You don't need to go back to that sewer, that highway that leads to destruction. It's time to move on and move towards the will of God. I don't know which way you might need to hear it today. Maybe you need somebody to just kind of come along and say, it's enough. You know you've had enough. It's time to move in a different direction. Or maybe you need that the coach that kind of kicks you in the rear and saying, it's enough. It's time to be sick and tired of that stuff and move in a different direction. So Peter, either way, is exhorting his friends. And maybe you're needing that exhortation here this morning. There's a weak spot in your wall. And that weak spot's creating all kinds of devastation and it's time to say enough and it's time to move away. And my question, if you're a Christian here, is what is that for you? What's your plan and who is helping you? You're not going to do it. You're not going to be resolved in your mind to get it done today. You have to have somebody else who's going to help you pull, pull you out of it. And if you're not a Christian, I would ask you to see that what you're serving eventually leads to death and destruction. It doesn't lead to life. As pleasurable as it may seem at the moment, it leads to death and destruction. Remember Moses, sort of that last pleading. Here's this man who's walked with God and he says, I'm setting before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now, what does he say? Choose life. Separate from the old ways and, and choose to walk after the Lord. Finally, the third and final point, the right perspective. Verses 5 and 6. You have to have an eternal perspective on, on these things. When, when you're maligned in verse 4, when, when, you're, when you're with your old crowd... And they say, hey, you're not rolling this way with us anymore. And you say, no. And they begin to malign you. You remember, verse 5, they, they will give an account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are, who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh, they, they've experienced that final consequence of sin. Now, because they've heard the gospel, they can live in the spirit the way God lives in the spirit. So Peter reminds us of this third weapon that we have to have and is that it's an eternal perspective and that that in that eternal eternal perspective we know that the day of judgment is coming that you and I will stand one day before God almighty. And that day is coming. It's like gravitational pull. It's going to happen. You know, if you have young young kids and you fill up the tub, you wash your kids and then you pull the plug out of the tub. I mean, it doesn't drain immediately, but you know, right? 
you go back, you get your kids in bed, and you come back, what happens? It's all, it's all circled down to one particular point. And I wonder if you, if you feel that gravitational pull. It, you may be, a, it feels like a long one, but you're heading, everyone's heading to one particular spot. And it's the day of judgment when you stand before God. And John describes that in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him, and, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled away from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And each person was judged according to what he has done. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so Peter is asking us to have an eternal perspective on the situations that we find ourselves in. We're all heading towards this one particular moment. And I wonder if that affects the way you think today. And the way it can be so helpful is that you would be uh, cognizant that you, whether you're great or small, you will stand in that place. And so without trying to look at other people who are doing evil things, look at your own heart. What's the condition of your own soul? The second thing it helps you is when you're being maligned, when you say to yourself, it looks like that evil is winning. I see evil people getting away with things and it never seems like they're called to account. You can say one day they'll be called to an account. One day. And it won't cause you, if you understand the consequences, to look down on them. It should not cause that. It should cause you to get down on your knees and pray for them. To love your enemies. Because one day, they're going to be standing there by themselves. And you wouldn't want anyone to stand there without Christ. And, of course, it will help you if you've lost somebody that you've loved who has known Christ. Because you know that even though they have suffered the consequences of sin, meaning death, they are now alive to to God in the same way that God is alive as a spirit. And so it creates an uplift that, yes, I know that's true about that person that I know, my mom, my brother, my sister, my friend, that even though they died... They are really alive now in a new way towards Christ. Well, that's my best flight attendant spiel. I tried to drop the oxygen mask and tell you that if you're living for Christ, you are headed for a crash landing. Somewhere, relationally, emotionally, something's going to happen and you're going to need to know well, what do I do when I see it moving in that direction? I, you've got to have the right thinking. You have to have the right passions. You have to have the right perspective. Let's pray together. Lord, it's uh, impossible for me to know, not necessary either, how you would use uh, a transformed fisherman one who idolized himself 
to speak to a first century congregation in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago and use those words to speak directly to the hearts and minds of your people here. But I know it happens. It happens regularly because you're alive and you're at work and you're your word is living and powerful. It's like a two-edged sword, and it, it can cut right down to uh, divide a soul. And so I pray whatever has been said here today, that it, it sink deeply to the spot that you intended for it to hit. I pray this for many reasons, but uh, one is that we would be transformed people. And so as we go out into our community and we... We think of this weekend, the Isaiah Festival, and how we, we celebrate the great things about our city. And we find ourselves spread out to, to parties and events and things that go on downtown that somehow as we walk along these places that we would, we would bring in an aroma of Christ. And when we do, um, for some, that will... That will create a difficult conversation. But I'm praying for that, that you're arming your people for that time, that they would suffer for doing good, knowing knowing that you can bring a tremendous victory out of that moment. Lord, help us in, in those ways and more, we pray in Jesus' name.